Good morning. My name is Roberta King, and I am a professor of communication and ethnomusicology at Fuller Seminary. I'll ask Pastor Greg to explain that later. Our, <laughs> our scripture reading today is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, I spent the summer of 1973 doing mission work in Japan as a part of the uh, Wheaton College Summer Missionary Program. Somehow when I went over to Japan, um, the mission leaders who were there in Japan found out that I had financed a lot of my way through college by singing. Uh, I recorded these music jingles for uh, radio. I um, sang in churches. I sang in Billy Graham, Associate Evangelist Crusade. So after I was there for a few weeks in Japan, uh, the mission executives came up and said, we want you to sing at this conference we're having up at the Aori um, uh, Retreat Center up in the northern part of Japan. Because we're having a conference, we'd like you to go and speak and sing. However, they told me I was going to have to take the train up there on my own because they, they didn't have anybody to go with me. Now, I was a 21-year-old college student. I thought I could do anything. So I said, sure, I am in. So uh, I took that train trip, which was about six to seven hours away from where I lived. I lived in Kofushi. I'm going to show you a map here so you can kind of envision my trip that I took. I lived down in Kofushi in Yamanashi Prefecture. I went over to, uh, to Tokyo and changed trains, which is just there close to Yokohama. And then I headed up north on the train that would lead there. And everything went pretty well until I got just north of Sendai. See it up there? Because then I got into the rural parts of northern Japan. Now, I don't know if it's still the case because that was a long, long time ago. But back then, in the rural communities of Japan, at the smaller train stops, all the signs were written in kanji. 
And I, I couldn't read that script, so I'll just show you kind of what, oh no, there must be another one there. Isn't there another picture there? Ah, that's the one that I was looking for. You see, I would look at that and, and, and I couldn't really see what the city was. Now, you gotta picture this. I, I couldn't understand the spoken announcements. I couldn't read the signs, and I began to panic because I didn't know where to get off. So I remember, you know, I'm pretty extroverted, so I went around talking with everybody, saying, here's my, here's my exit, can you tell me where to get off? And they would all just shake their heads and shake their hands as if to say, I don't speak English, I don't know what you're asking, let me tell you on that day. I began to understand the importance of signs if you're going to find the way to your destination. And I learned that you not only need to be able to see the signs, you need to be able to understand the signs. Now, if you can understand that illustration, and I'm guessing that you can, because I mean, I think we've all had times when we've been looking for a sign, you know, an exit sign to get out of the theater or a sign to get you to a place in a city you've never been in before. And I'm guessing some of you, when you first came to Lake Avenue Church, this place is like a maze. You know, having to find a sign how to get up to Hutchins Hall and all of that. I think you can understand this illustration and know that, that a sign like this exit sign over here is very important. But the important thing is not just the sign. You don't just say, well, that sure is a nice sign. The big important thing about a sign is what that sign points to, what it tells us about. Signs almost always point us to something we cannot at that time see or we may not at that time understand. So that brings us today, this beginning series in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, when he describes what we call the miracles of Jesus, he didn't call them miracles. Oh, they were miracles but he kept calling them in his language signs, semeon. Why? But obviously, because they all pointed to something else. What he tells us is that they pointed towards something about the identity of Jesus or the reason why Jesus had come because there were certain things that people could see about Jesus. I mean, they could see that he was a man, but John wanted us to see that he was that and much more. They could see a lot of the things Jesus could do. I mean, he ate, he traveled, he fished, and yet he did much more than that. He did, well, as John would say, he came to do some significant things in our world and in our lives. So, for the next seven weeks, we are going to be looking at the seven signs that John chooses to tell us about in his gospel. What should happen? What should you and I be seeing what should we be grasping when we see these signs through these seven weeks? And John himself tells us near the end of his book in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I'll put it up here for you and I'll read it for you. So Jesus performed many other signs, John said, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, when you look at those verses, do you see there the two effects that seeing these signs should have in your life? Number one, you should affirm or reaffirm that you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and then number two, for so many of us who do believe that, 
that you and I in a new and fresh way may find life, the life that he alone can give, life that comes in his name, as Jesus would call it in John 10, 10, life that is to the full. So here's where we're gonna start today, the place where John started his uh, description of the signs with the first one. Verse 11, I don't know if you noticed as, as, uh, as we were hearing the scriptures being read today that, that it was called the first sign. And by that, I don't think it was necessarily the first chronologically, but it's the foundational sign for all of them pointing to who Jesus is and why he came. It was done in a small town, a, a, a town called Tecana. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. If you've ever traveled to the Holy Land, Jesus did almost all of his miracles in another small town called Capernaum. So here's where I have that other map. I don't know if we can find that. Uh, Cana was about 16 miles away from Capernaum, so they could travel it. It would be quite a trip, but I think they probably walked, uh, walked it. And uh, the question that we have is, to whom or to what does this first sign point? So I'll tell you, as I look at it and what we're going to see, I think on one point, it points back to what God has done, to what's happened in our world. It points into the past. Number two, it points forward into the future to show us what Jesus will do. And when we see that, it also points right now to our time, especially to what the coming of Jesus means to us in times in which a crisis hits us, a crisis that might even cause shame, as happened on that day. So let's begin. It's a sign to help us look back into the past and understand our past. And the thing I want you to know right now is that God has been at work in this world since the very beginning. And so what we need to do is to find our place in the work of God. It's not just starting here in in uh, Pasadena, God has been at work. And here I want you to see these phrases. Verse one, on the third day, and in verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that are used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Those two phrases are the ones I want you to make note of. As we come to those, there's something that perhaps you already know, but in the book of John, uh, the book of Genesis plays a huge role. You need to almost read, especially the first three chapters of Genesis, and then open up to John. Did, did you know that Genesis and John start with the very same phrase, in the beginning? And then the opening chapter is really like an explanation of what's happening in Genesis. It says that, that God created the world through speaking, and now this one who has come is the Word, Jesus called the Word, through whom God created. He was God, through whom all things were made. He goes on to talk about that Jesus as the creator entering into this messed up creation to recreate it. That's happening in John. So when we come to chapter two, we have this phrase, on the third day. Which day was that? Was it the third day of the wedding? Was it the third day of the week? Was it the third day John mentions? No, he's already mentioned three days before this. What's going on? It should take you back to the book of Genesis and just at least to ask the question, what did God create on the third day? Well, let me show you what it tells us in verse 11. Here's a part of it. On the third day, God said, let the land produce vegetation, bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to the very kinds. And it was so. So, do you see it? On the third day, that was the day that God created the vines from which wine is made. Are, are you with me here? As we, are you? 
Yeah, I want, I want to keep going. So when you keep reading into the Old Testament and the work of God, you come to the prophets who talk about the fact that when this Messiah comes, he will demonstrate God's control over all creation, including the plants and the vines. And in fact, 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah had spoken about this specifically in Isaiah 25.6. I think I put it here for you so you can see it. When this Messiah comes, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. It will be a banquet of aged wine. There will be the best of meats, the finest of wines. Remember that phrase. He will swallow up then death forever. And then the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. See, the point I, I want to make to you in this sign in Cana is that it points back to God being at work in this world. It points back to his creation of a good world, including all the plants and vines that are a part of this good world, including all the fruit and the vine that it makes. So God knows that that good world, which was very good when he first created, has been harmed. But I tell you, he is at work to do something and we know to make all things new. So the point I want you to see is God has been continuously at work in this world to bring about this world that Isaiah talks about, a world where there's no more hunger, no more lack, no more tears, and no more death. And Jesus' coming is central to that work. Now, now, there's still a work to be done, right? You know that we haven't come to that final perfect world yet. You do know that, right? But that brings us to that second phrase that I mentioned just a minute ago about the six jars that were there, verse 6. They were usually used, the Bible says, for purification rites. Big, huge, 30-gallon jars <laughs> that used because there were a lot of dirty things and things that they thought kept them from God where sin had influenced this world. So the particular group of uh, Jewish people that John was a part of, almost certainly a group called the Essenes, I'm telling you, in those big jars, they washed everything because they thought everything in this world was tainted by the wrong and the evil in this world. They, wa they washed in those jars their cooking utensils. They washed their clothes. They washed themselves in this world. But all of that washing that was being done couldn't get rid of all of the effects of sin in their lives or in this world. Because I'm sure you noticed, how, ma how many of those big jars were there that are called jars for cleansing, jars for purification? How many were there? There were six. And for the Jewish people, the word six was a word for incompletion. God created in seven days. That's the word for completion work for incompletion, so all of this cleaning that you tried to do with those jars, it couldn't do it fully. And Jesus is shouting out to us that he came to do what those jars could never do fully. They pointed to our need. They pointed to someone who was going to come who could complete what they were pointing to, but Jesus is the one who has come into wor this world to make pure what is impure, to perfect what is imperfect, and that uh, includes all the people, including you and me. So with, with all those things in mind, let's stop for a moment to try to see what this part of this sign points toward as it points back to the work of God in history. I, I, I really think it helps us to get a, a perspective, a worldview of what's happening in our world. 
Uh, it, it points out this fact that God has been and still is at work. He's been at work from the very beginning on. But at the same time, as he's at work, it points out the needs that we have for cleansing and our own need in this world until he's finished that work for completion, to be made new. There's a continuity in this work of God. He was at work on the third day. He was at work in the days of Isaiah. Jesus was the very center of this work. But God is still at work to bring to completion what he started. What does this say to us? Uh, I think on a very personal level, it makes us see that whenever things happen in our world, Jeff, as you prayed about, things that, that, that happened um, in Sri Lanka, and Eric, you have mentioned this to us, things you've experienced in your own home country of Pakistan, of persecutions and pain, that we look at this and we are not surprised because our world is not yet complete. God knows that. But though he knows it, he is still at work in this world. And he also knows where you and I are incomplete. It means that we look at our lives and we see things in ourselves that are not pure, the challenges that we face that we're not up to, failures that we come into, we, the needs that we have. We shouldn't be surprised. We need a rescuer. We need someone who will come and complete what God has started. So I think we have to look at this and see that God is at work, and then we find our place within that work of God, and we say, Lord, continue to do your work, do your work in me, and do your work through me. Now, for us as a, as a church right now, I think this has something very special to say to us. You know, we're, we're walking into what I have been calling a transition time, transition from one senior pastor to another. I've decided that's not a very good phrase. I think it's better to be called a continuity time because God has been at work in this church in the past too. 125 years ago, miraculously, through a group of young women, particularly a woman named Haiti Bryan, God brought this place into being. He was at work then. He has been at work through people before I ever came here and before any of you ever came here. And I want to tell you, he is still at work now, and there is still a work he needs to do in us. There is still a work he wants to do through us. So I've thought about it this way. <clears throat> Sometimes we almost forget that we get to step into what God is already doing, right? That's our great privilege, to be used in what God is already doing, what he promises he will complete. So our nominating committee right now is looking for the next elected leaders, and they're also looking for the members of the senior pastor search committee. And then we have all these things that you and I get to vote on what they are going to be recommending to us. All of this is happening. With that happening, I encourage us all to stop and look back and discern what God has been doing in this place for many, many years. And in more recent years, to asking the question, what has God been saying to those that he has placed in spiritual leadership here? I've been here 12 years now. We have this ever-rotating group of, of, of elected leaders and pastors who sometimes come and then get called to other places. Let me just tell you this. We have been seeking the Lord diligently throughout these 12 years. We think God has spoken to us about many things. Um, we sometimes have heard the voice of the Lord, 
And I think that we shouldn't just say, well, let's ignore that and go on, but we need to take time to listen. God, what are you doing here? Because it's going to be continuous with what he has done in the past, just as it was with Jesus. When Jesus stepped in, it was continuous already with what his father had been doing. Now, I'll tell you, things in a church like ours need to change as the world changes. The kind of music we do, that, that needs to, the kind of programs we have. Even the pastors who lead have changed and will change until the Lord returns, but the gospel dare never change. And we, ne we need to sense again and again, Lord, where have you been moving? Where have our people before we have come heard so that we could step into the work of God? This sign points back to the fact that we don't have to start from nothing. God created from nothing. We step into what he's doing. But it also, it also points forward. It's a sign to make known our future. Yeah. It's kind of like Tony Stark in the Avengers Endgame turns and says, Miss Potts, a part of the journey is the end. And I'll tell you, for us, our end, as I've written for you, our destiny is indescribably fantastic. I want us to look at that too, because even though some of the past has been difficult and they needed purification jars, even though some of the present, it's incomplete still, the future is incredible. And I'll just show you these two phrases. Each of those purification jars that had then wine in them after Jesus had recreated that, had killed 20 to 30 gallons, verse 6. And then when they brought the wine into the master of the feast, hey, he said to the bridegroom, everyone else brings out the choice wine first, but you have saved the best till now. All right. I want to say as briefly as possible that almost all Christians throughout the history of the church have loved this miraculous part of the sign provided at the feast in Cana especially those who come from churches that have been persecuted, have loved this. So please don't miss these two parts. This sign that he did there, the, the, the quantity of it and the quality of it. So the quantity of it. Jesus created 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now that's a lot of wine even in a small community. It was an exorbitant, maybe an almost outrageous amount of wine. So, some people think that Jesus making this, mu this much wine was scandalous. And don't miss the quality either. It was like Isaiah said Messiah will do. It was the best wine, which was a part of the miracle, of course. Wine aficionados point out that the best Bordeaux wines don't become their best until 30 to 40 years after they've been bottled. But look at what Jesus did. He acted, he spoke, and poof! <laughs> this was the best wine. Now, I, I've got to address elephant in the room. There, there are a lot of churchgoers in our day who are troubled by this quantity and quality of wine, and I really understand it. You gotta remember, I was a university president, and I saw the negative effects of alcohol, and, and I understand that. At the same time, I'll just tell you, our brothers and sisters in the early church who were heavily persecuted were not scandalized by this quantity and quality of the wine was there. You've gotta remember, and Eric, I think you set the stage for us today. 
that I, I think the Christians that you referred to in Sri Lanka and in Pakistan could relate so much to our early brothers and sisters. That was a persecuted church. M many, of, many of the early Christians uh, were persecuted by people and had their, their closest friends, church members, and pastors who were killed in the persecution. I'll tell you, they looked at this and they said, why would God allow things like this to happen? And what, what signs like this did? It pointed to the fact that as tough as it is right now, it will not last forever. It will not last forever. And they looked forward with great joy that just as Jesus did at Cana and giving in abundance and with great, great joy. So that's what our destiny is going to be. I just want you to hear how one of the church fathers tried to describe it. His name was Irenaeus. And he wanted to talk about, in the midst of all the persecution, that we can hold on and it's going to be beautiful. And this is what he wrote. I think I put it here. It's just amazing to me. The days will come. This is when Messiah finishes his work. In which vines will grow each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch, 10,000 twigs, and in each twig, 10,000 shoots, and on each one of the shoots, 10,000 clusters, and on every one of the clusters, 10,000 grapes. Are you imagining this? And every grape, when pressed, will give five and 20 gallons of wine. And when any one of God's people shall hold, lay hold of a cluster, another shall cry, cry out, I am a better cluster. <laughs> Take me. Bless the Lord through me. What Irenaeus was trying to say was he could never find words adequate to be able to, no metaphor sufficient, to be able to describe what our Father has for us. What he wanted to say to his people is the God that we know is no spoil sport. It's the thing I always proclaim to you. Jesus did not give his life to ruin ours. He gave us to give, came to give his life to the full. And what the future is going to be is going to be far better than even Adam and Eve had in paradise. Because even back then, you know, uh, they were still susceptible to sin. What he is going to do in our lives, Jesus says, I'm going to recreate this world that I have created and that has gone wrong, and I'm going to do more than those six purification jars can do. I'm not gonna just wash you clean to make it like it was so that you can fail again. See what Jesus, I think I wrote this, what Jesus will bring about is much more and much better than even the Garden of Eden was. We, just make note of this, we will be set free, we will be liberated from the enticements and the entanglements of temptation and sin and wrong we will celebrate our recovery. So all of you folks who are in our Celebrate Recovery ministry, you're gonna love heaven. <laughs> We're gonna celebrate with you. I, I know all of this, this freedom from bondage, this, it's hard to imagine. It almost seems impossible when I think of just being even set free from the temptations toward wrong. But I'll tell you what is impossible for us is possible for God. This is our fantastic destiny. So this sign at Cana, you see, it points back to the past that God is always at work, and let's find our place in it. It points to the future, that when things here are tough, the future is really wonderful, but it doesn't just leave us looking at the future. It speaks into our present now. It is a sign to give you and me hope, whatever we are going through in our lives now, and it is that Jesus is with us in the midst of our crises. So the mother of Jesus, in verse 3, came to him and said, 
they have no wine. Um, a wedding is almost always a significant event wherever we come from. Uh, but I'm telling you, the kind of wedding in Jesus' day is unlike any wedding in where I've grown up here, here in the United States. I mean, it's big for us, but their, their ceremonies lasted at least three days. A wedding back then was a whole community event. Everybody came. The entire extent, both sides of the family, the extent, came together, and they were going to celebrate the coming together, the merging of these families. And I'll tell you, they were supposed to have an abundance of food and wine. And it was expensive. Uh, sometimes a man would spend half of the money he would, in, uh, he would earn his entire life on weddings within the family. And it was the responsibility of the bridegroom and his family to provide that food and wine just as other families and other generations had done it for a long time in their community. It was a big thing. Food and wine were a huge part of it. And the reputation of that groom's family was all dependent upon them doing this well. And the family marrying into it, their reputation was based upon the groom's family doing this well. So if you know that, isn't there pathos in these words of Mary when she comes to Jesus and just says, they have no wine. I mean, no more needed to be said. I feel, I mean, it was to bring shame. Shame upon the groom, shame upon his family, shame to his wife, shame to his wife's family. I, I don't know if any event in our culture has so much possibility for shame as this did. We, I was gathering with the pastors as we prepared for this sermon, and we tried to find anything in our world that would be kind of like that. I couldn't, but, you know, they put me on the spot anyway. They said, we live more of a guilt-based culture. Pastor Greg, have you ever felt shame in your life? So they wouldn't let me off the hook either. And then I, what, you know what happened to me as I thought about it? All sorts of incidences flooded into my brain. You know why I think that's true? Because it seems like shame has a remarkable power to stick in our memory banks. Anybody else agree with me there? We remember those times, and I remembered a number of them, but one of them in particular came to my mind. It happened just before Chris and I got married. Uh, I was a music missionary in Germany. Yes, I was a singer. So I did that for about six months a year. And then I would come back to the U.S., and for about six months a year, I would be doing my graduate work at Wheaton Grad School. And during that time as a missionary, I didn't have much money. So in one of those stints as a student, I, I, I uh, was just about to go back to Germany. I think it was the day before. I had bought an engagement ring for Chris. I had paid all the bills, school bills and things that I could remember that I had, and I gathered together all the money that I possibly could have because I want, there was one faculty member who had made such a difference in my life, and I just wanted to thank him, I wanted to honor him, so I raked together all the money I could get. To, to, I'd called him up and said, I want to take you out to lunch just to say thank you. So the morning of that lunch came, and I got a call from the business office at Wheaton who said, there's a part of your bill that you forgot to pay, and you've got to come in and pay it now before you head back to Germany. I said, oh, no. So I went in, and it took everything that I had to pay that bill. And the lunch was just like an hour, an hour and a half away. And you've got to remember, we didn't have cell phones back then, so I couldn't just text him this sort of thing saying, I'm sorry, I've got to head to Germany. I'll get you when I come back again. No, and, and this telephone number in his office, it, it didn't reach it. And so I just went to the restaurant and 
waited for him to come. Um, so in, in the, I was there waiting uh, with a lot of anxiety, already feeling some shame. Then I saw him rush with this huge smile on his face. And he said, just as he greeted me, he says, hello, Greg, I, I can't believe that you're doing for me these things. And just as I was trying to find those words to say, well, I'm not. <laughs> or I can't. This couple rushed over to us and shouted out, Greg Waybright, you just sang and spoke at our church last Sunday. It was such a blessing. We've already told the server that we're paying for you and your friend to have lunch today. <laughs> oh, I can't, I, you can tell, even now, I still feel the euphoria inside. I, did, <laughs> I didn't even tell him I couldn't have paid for anything. It was something like that, though much, 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 much bigger that happened at Cana that day. Uh, did you notice that Jesus didn't even tell people, I did it? He didn't take credit for it, the servants knew it, but the master of the feast didn't even know it. He let the bridegroom take credit for it. The, the master just said, well, you brought the best wine last. Nobody ever does that. Jesus had just stepped in, and he had removed the man's shame. Sega Warku, our Lake Avenue Church Director of Counseling pointed out that in his years of counseling it used to be that when church people came to crises and knew that issues of shame might be coming into their home, the first place they'd go is to their church. Sometimes just to be there to worship, sometimes to pray together with their church family. He says he, he can hardly believe how much that has changed in the past few years. We come to church and try to hide all those crises we have and the shame that we might feel, and we go other places to find our support and to find our help. Let me tell you, I think a church should be a place where we always come to meet Jesus and meet him together in the midst of a world in which God is not done with his work yet, and because of that, crises and shame are still very much alive, right? still very much alive. So what did Mary do? She brought the crisis to Jesus. They have no wine. Now, people are troubled by what Jesus said. He said, woman, why do you involve me? My, my hour has not yet come. Th this was not disrespectful. It's, it's making the point that I've been trying to make to you. The same thing that happened when Jesus went into the temple and taught. I am a part of another family my father, as the book of Isaiah says, has said, I am going to have my own wedding. And in my own wedding, my hour, my, when my wedding comes, uh, I'm going to provide plenty of food and plenty of wine. Why do you come to bring me into this? Because my hour has not yet come. That's coming. And you know the book of Revelation talks about that marriage supper of the Lamb. And when Jesus has it, there will be nothing lacking. That's what he said. That's what he's saying right here. But, but Mary knew he would do something because she knew Jesus. And whatever she may have said, in that time of their crisis, Jesus was the one to whom Mary came, and he was the one who stepped in and made a difference. So I'll just tell you, whatever happens to you, when crisis and shame come into your life this side of heaven, 
I hope you won't do what Sega says everybody's doing, saying, I'm not gonna go to church until this is over. I'm not just, I'm gonna come and just act like everything is still perfect here. I pray that you will come and in this place, bring it to Jesus and in this place find a family who will come to Jesus with you. And remember this sign that he was at work in the past Remembering the future, as hard as it might be right now, he will be work, at work until we get into that fantastic future. And remember that he is still here now and is still ready and able to step into the midst of crisis. Do what Mary did, go to Jesus. And let Mary's admonition sort of ring in your ears, turning to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do that. See what he will do. That's the first sign. Should I tell you what happened on that train in Japan? Any, anybody, anybody still? <laughs> I tried to leave you with a cliffhanger there. So I'll tell you. Uh, I was unable to read the signs. I was certain I would never find my way. I was panicking. Well, just as this train was stopping at this little rural uh, train station, this young man, came from behind me, and he was one that I had gone to, and he had said, no, 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 tapped me on the shoulder, and in absolutely perfect English said, sir, this is your stop. You can get off here. And through him, amen, I did clap, I'll just tell you. (laughs) Through him I found my way. I am praying this that this series of messages in the Gospel of John talking about signs will be a time in which when I have the opportunity to open this word, that he will use me to speak to you about what God's word might be saying to you, and that as you come to church, whatever is happening, you will almost feel like God's tap on your shoulder saying to you that he has been at work He will be at work until it's complete, and he's still here today. Trust me. I pray as John prays that these signs, even beginning right now, will lead you to a point that wherever you are, you'll just reaffirm your faith that Jesus is who he said he was. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And I think as much as anything, I pray that in believing that more deeply than ever before, you will, as John says, find life in the here and now. Find life that comes into his name, in his name, that comes in its fullness when he is done. And I'll tell you, as Jeremy is going to come now and sing for us, till all things are made new, It will be to his glory. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, on this Sunday after Easter, I'm so thankful for each one who has come, knowing that you are here. I pray that as we've opened your word, whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we have heard your voice saying that just as you have been at work in the past, you are still at work and that we can bring all those issues, crises, shame, guilt, all those things to you, and that you can make them new. You can cleanse as water pots never could. You can set us free. Father, take this word and use it in each one of our lives in whatever ways we need it. 
till your work in us is done, till we and all things in your creation are made right and new in the name of Jesus and to his glory. Amen.